Hello and welcome. My guest today is Chris Powers, and Chris is a serial entrepreneur with more than 14 years of real estate development and investment experience. He's raised more than $110 million in equity financing, and to date, Ford Capital has invested over $500 million in multifamily student housing, commercial, industrial, and residential development projects throughout the state of Texas. But in typical fashion on this podcast, we didn't talk too much about any of that stuff in particular. We instead spoke about how money changes somebody or has the potential to, the role of mentorship, finding a spouse, parenting, optimism, and putting himself out on the internet. This was a wide-ranging conversation in a way that I've never seen Chris before. So because of that, it was really impactful, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode. If you enjoy it, please share it on your social media profile. Share it personally through texts or group chats. Wherever you share stuff to your people, share this episode if you find it impactful. Thank you so much for listening, and here's a little preview of what to expect with this episode with Chris Powers. Whoever's listening to this, there are people that have done what you want to do. Mm. They've been the best dad. They've been the best CEO. They've been the best product manager. They've been the best golfer. And they've been the best podcaster. And you have a few decisions. You can make a million mistakes that have already been made by other people. Or you can jump the line and get that wisdom, what should I do, what shouldn't I do? Chris, thank you for coming on the show today. Really grateful and honored for you to be here and excited to dive into your story today in a way I haven't seen it online before. It's a pleasure to be here, man. I've, I've really enjoyed following your stuff and the podcast that you built, so thank you for having me. Hell yeah. I'd love to start with this tweet from you your most popular tweet ever but i would love to dive into it and explore from your perspective and that is my dad was a lawyer until he was 37 at 37 he came home and said i'm going to be a doctor he resigned and went back to get undergrad prerequisites then applied for med school at 38 didn't become a doctor until 46 as i approached 37 i realized how crazy that story actually is. The reason why I bring it up first is because there probably are a lot of people listening who are saying to themselves, oh, I would like to do something else, but they feel as if they can't or feel that they've already created this career capital in a certain avenue or a certain profession. So I'm just curious if you could address all of that, and I'd love to start there. Yeah. You've done your research. Um, so... It's funny. I've thought a lot about that the last few years. So I'm 35. I'm about to be 36. Uh, my dad passed away um, 10 years ago. And it's funny because I was, I was sitting there in a conversation that morning at breakfast, and I just we, we'd been talking about it, and I just fired the tweet off, and it went, I think it got like hundreds of thousands of likes. It went viral. I still get people send me the tweet, you know, almost a year later. 
But I think the thing I think about a lot when I think about that is, um, one, just courage. Man, it takes a lot of courage to have two kids. My dad, you know, there's some people in the comments that said, oh, great, rich lawyer decides to become rich. It couldn't be further from the truth. He didn't have hardly any in savings because he had, it's almost like as soon as he paid off his law, law school bills, he decided to become a doctor. And so the first thing I think about is courage. Like how many folks in their life that are unhappy at what they're doing and get the, the value, the um, understand that we only live one life can not only come home and say, I'm going to be a doctor, but also say that to two kids, a wife have a, a, a comfy life in El Paso, Texas, where we're from, and not only switch careers, but do it in something that takes eight years to build the new career. Four years of medical school, which you make no money, and four years of residency, which at the time you made about 32000 35000 a year for four years. So my dad went from probably making $120,000 grand a year to making one hundred twenty grand over the next eight years. And so one is like courage. Two, and I didn't think about this at the time. I remember being a kid, and, and a lot of his friends and adults would always be like, this is insane that he's doing this. And when you're seven years old, like you don't really grasp the gravity of the decision. Um, and so like today, as I think about it, like I said, I'm almost 37. I can't imagine it. Now, the one thing is I'm very fortunate. I love what I do, so I'm not sitting here wanting to do something else. But I think what that tweet also taught me is how many folks are stuck or unhappy at what they're doing or want to do something different and don't really know how to get it done. And so it's courage. It's bravery. It kind of is a reminder that you're only going to live life once. He certainly didn't have to do that, but he would always say, like, I can't imagine leaving this world and not having given this a shot. You know, his dad was a lawyer, and so that's why he became a lawyer, which I think, I don't know if it's as common in today's generation, but I feel like our grandparents and parents was like, oh, I was this because my dad was this or whatever. And so he just woke up one day and said, I'm going to change. And so, I don't know, as I sit there, I think it's courage, I think it's bravery, and I think it's a reminder that we're all going to be on this planet one time and we need to make the most of it. Um, and part of that's, you know, following passions that we have and not necessarily, you know, uh, following society's path for you. So the world has a way of trying to put you in, put you somewhere. And I think it's our job to find out if that's where we should be or if we should be somewhere else. How have you found and figured out your own uniqueness or your own path when society is telling you to do this? This is what you should do. How have you come to the conclusion of like, no, I need to blaze my own path? And have you, do you have any tips or tricks to figure that out for other people as well? Yeah, I think uh, somebody told me once like entrepreneurship is a reckless disregard for conventional wisdom. <laughs> um, and I'll say this. I think there's the, there's the question like... Um, are you born an entrepreneur or can you learn to become an entrepreneur? And I don't think it's one answer, but what I can say is um, since I was a kid, I've started businesses, but since I was a kid, I had a really tough time um, listening to authority, which has been a very big strength and a weakness of mine. Since I was in middle school, so, I mean, elementary school, on all of my report cards, the teacher would say, you know, he's smart, he gets along with people, but he really doesn't listen to folks. And I can remember like in second grade, my, my mom 
And my dad always saying, like, you got to listen to authority. And so, again, I say it's a strength, it's a weakness. It's a strength in that it's allowed me... There's never been really a day in my life that I've thought, I need to go do what somebody else wants me to do. I've always been on this mission of, like, I'm just going to do what feels right. Um, the reason that's a weakness is there is some freedom in actually having uh, guardrails and being obedient uh, and and listening. And I've it's taken me later in life to figure that out. I feel like that's the stage I'm in now is I used to think freedom was um, you can do whatever you want whenever you want. And that can actually – it feels like freedom at first, but you can actually get lost in this world when no, when you have no kind of guardrails. There's something freeing about being obedient to something or someone or some set of rules. doesn't mean you can't, um, you know, make decisions that are unique to yourself and follow your pers- and follow your own passion. But um, I, as I mature more, I'm, I'm less on a, on a mission to just have total freedom and more on a mission to maybe just think critically and think for myself. So you mentioned being an entrepreneur at a young age and you knew – you didn't like authority. Take me through what it was like to sell golf clubs on eBay. Yeah, so I was in um, high school from 2000 to 2004, and I played golf before that. And so people listening now, they're like, oh, you sold golf clubs on eBay. Like, that is not very original. But back then, it kind of was original. And so, again, what did I love? I loved golf. Two, I saw an opportunity, which was every you know everybody's always buying old golf clubs, and now I think in society we take it for granted that there's always an outlet to sell something you don't want, eBay, Craigslist, whatever. But back then, if you had something and you didn't want it anymore, you either had to have a garage sale or like maybe go on Craigslist or, I mean, maybe call somebody and just say, hey, do you want my old golf club? And so when eBay came out, I would sell my old golf clubs so that I could get money to buy new golf clubs. And then I realized really quickly, oh, wait, there's a lot of people on my team that wanted to do it. And so, really, I just became uh, known as the guy that would sell your golf clubs on eBay, and that's what I did. And uh, learned how to, you know, obviously buy some inventory, how to sell it at the time. You know, learning how to set up a great eBay page was something I, th- I still think it's important. But take good photos, have the right listing, um, and so it was just a scrappy way to make money. But I think again, it started out of something I was doing every day and saw a need for. And so it was kind of natural that that would be something that I do. So going back to the piece about authority and going and not following it and knowing in your heart that you wanted to be the person in control of your own fate and you wanted to be the person who was making the rules for yourself. How do you suggest people who might be listening to this and in a position where they it feels as if they currently can't? Right, like, for example, I I went to college or was in high school, and I knew that I had this itch to do something more, but I kind of pushed it away because I knew that uh, my parents aren't going to like that I'm doing this. I want to be normal because of what their standards for me are. Like, if you could go back to talk to the 15-year-old kid of myself who's starting a Knicks blog, like... What would you tell that kid? Because I think a lot of those kids are, are listening to this podcast. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it, some of it's just been natural. I've never been able to think any other way. Mm. But I would just remind people, like, the world solves for the average. 
like school, they test for average scores. Um, you know, there's outliers on either side, but the majority, the, the, the reason why there's the top 1%, the bottom 1% is because there's an average in the middle. Mm-hmm. And so just a lot of the way the world thinks about teaching people is um, solve for the average. And the average isn't a bad thing, but a lot of times the average by way of like making career choices or taking risky decisions is the less risk, the better. Or it's what's what what I perceive as risk is different than what you perceive as risk. So, um, for example, like this podcast, there's probably a lot of people that want to start a podcast, but they think it's really risky. Well, if I asked you if it's risky, you'd be like, no, it's not risky. It's fun. I enjoy doing it. I meet people. So the things that you get um, better at making decisions about or do seem less risky to somebody that hasn't yet made the jump. And so... I think the biggest thing I could do um, or offer for somebody to gain confidence that might not have it is don't ask people that haven't done the thing that you want to do if you should do it. Or don't go to them and ask them for wisdom to start a company if they've never started a company. Like if I was going to start a podcast, well, I have one, but let's just say I didn't, I'd go to Danny and I'd say, tell me everything about starting a podcast. I would never go to someone that doesn't have one and say, you think I should start one? And so maybe what I would tell that younger generation is if you're on the fence about something, try and find someone or somebody or a few people in your in your life or that you may know that have done it and try and get all their wisdom first. That'll make the burden of making the decision probably feel a lot lighter. Yeah, I think that's great advice. What's tripped me up in the past is that there have been smart people in my life who haven't done the thing that I want to do but have been giving me advice. Oh, yeah. So in, in your case, it's like, your father is a, a doctor and a lawyer, obviously a bright guy to some extent to be able to go through all that training. And then he's telling you, no, nah, don't start a business. Well, that's a, a much harder that's much harder for you to fathom because you love your dad and you, you know he's smart, but he hasn't done what you specifically want to do. So that's like a, a nuance that I don't think is talked about often. How have you dealt with that in the past? Well, they and they, they'll tell you... Um when somebody gives you advice, what they're really doing is telling you about themselves. Mm. And so if you want to learn about somebody, go ask for advice from them because nobody's giving advice on the things they haven't done or uh, their view of the world. So anybody that would say, um, like you just, again, you could ask them any question, but the way they respond to you is an interpretation of their life. And can you repeat what your original question was? I kind of went off yeah. on a tangent there. No, no, you're good. I, I was curious how you deal with when smart people who you know are smart mm. haven't done the thing that you want to do, but they're giving you advice, and you're like, well, I know they're smart. You know your yeah. dad's smart because he went through this lawyer-doctor training, and then you're like, well, he hasn't done what I want to do, so how much should you value that opinion or perspective? I think it's 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 kind of what you said. I think you have to build a filter for kind of taking the, the – um, you know, taking the advice and applying it to your situation, because even the same advice given to ten people is is different depending on you know where they are in life. Are they married or are they not married? Do they have kids? Where do they live? What are their interests? And so, I would just say building a filter for taking it and just taking it as what it is as advice. Because I'd say some of the biggest mistakes I've made probably early on in my career where when somebody like you just described, super smart, but hadn't done what I want to do, but you're like, well, you know, they're super smart. And you kind of just take what they say as the holy grail and you start changing your plan because of something else you've heard. 
And that's really easy to do as a kid or as a younger adult because you don't have a lot of wisdom yet. You haven't seen patterns. You haven't seen human patterns of how we tend to operate. And so you're like, well, they said that. That must be what it is. And so I would just encourage people to take advice. Um, when it does come from a smart person, there's probably a nugget in there somewhere that's great. Mm. But just apply it to your situation because we're all in a different situation. Yeah, that, that's beautiful advice. What You've said before that all real estate is is a byproduct of what humans are up to. And I'm curious like how you've gotten better at figuring out what humans are up to and their own patterns. Yeah, I think uh, this is a, a, an easy answer, um, but I don't think we do it enough, is just sitting and watching what the world does. I mean, mm. if you go to the beach, it doesn't take you very long to sit there and go, man, people really like coming here. They bring their families, they rent all this stuff, they get in the ocean, they take their families to dinner, they build sandcastles. And, and last time I checked, they've been doing this every single year for like hundreds of years these beach houses have been around forever and and every commercial i watch is somebody going to the beach and everybody on spring break is somebody going to beach so i could make a reference or an inference that i think beach property's pretty hot i think it's going to be around and i've got all this proof because people keep loving to dip themselves in water and there's nothing i can find out there that would tell me otherwise so maybe lake property oceanfront property property around beaches are going to do well so then I go look at, well, let's see, how is real estate done around those areas? Well, California's crushed it. Florida has crushed it. Uh, up into the East Coast, Northeast Coast, it's crushed it. Go over across seas to San Tropez, uh, water, uh, uh, waterfront property crushed it. So that would be a way of saying, okay, that's probably some uh, a, a, a safety guideline that I could invest in these markets and do pretty well. Alternatively, um, uh, you know, people love, uh, to the best of my knowledge, I haven't seen anywhere in the world where people aren't wanting to live under a roof. They want air conditioning. They want a roof. So I can make an inference that residential is going to do well. And you can kind of keep going on and on, but you take it to what are the people actually doing? Uh, in Fort Worth, if I wanted to know what's the best place to own a restaurant uh, or a, a retail building, I would just drive around and maybe spend 30 days observing all the different retail locations around town and go and look, there's a more people showing up here every night than over here. Now I might ask myself why, oh, it's close to the museums, it's close to downtown, uh, you know, it's easy highway access, but you could just, all I'm doing is watching is like, what are people doing? And then I'm going, okay, this is probably something that we could get into, ranch property. People love to ranch and farm in Texas. There's nothing that would show me over the last hundred years that people have once considered not liking it. And so then I go, well, there's 20 million people moving to Texas over the next 15 years or 20 years. They love, there's I'm ranching. One of them. Yeah, you're one of them. Ranching and farming is popular. I think ranch land's probably going to do pretty well. Now, if I'm just buying ranch land like this year and hoping to sell it next year at a profit, that's more speculating. But if I'm looking at the long-term horizon, it's like it's hard for me to find anything in humans that would say ranching in Texas is, is on its way to not being popular. I, I love how simple the approach is. I'm curious how you go about and do that in the digital landscape because th those were all physical examples. How do you go about and look at people in the 
digital world of social media and figure out what they're doing and, and where they're going? Well, probably a little bit how you do it. So one is, um, you know, looking for where is attention being had. I think we, we, we've both been followers of Gary Vee, uh, and I think he was the original guy that said you need to go where the attention is. Yes. So one is, uh, you know, let's take Twitter, for example. You know, some people could argue that, that um, Donald Trump, our last president, was, was uh, elected a lot of because of the Twitter following he had. We could make an argument about Elon Musk and his popularity uh, having to do with his presence on Twitter. Um, so we can see that there is a social conversation going on there. And then you can just go to people that have um, large or small follower accounts. But usually if you have a large following, you're kind of become known for something on the web of some, of some sort. Uh, and so then, like I think you've done even on this podcast, is you just start going and finding, like, what are they tweeting about? What are they talking about? Who are the people commenting on their um, tweets? Uh, who are the people that they're engaging with? And so, like, we're in a community on Twitter called Retweet. You've probably seen or heard of it. But it's not like anybody, like, clicks in and says, like, I'm a member. You just kind of become part of this larger conversation, and you do that by starting to converse with people that have kind of uh, that are thinking the same or, or wanting the same thing out of their digital experience. And so for me, it's I think the best way to do it is like, what do you want to learn? Finding people talking about that, finding people with large followings have probably been talking about that for a long time or they're really smart on a topic like nobody just gets, you know, lots of followers without having put in the work. Mm. Um, and so that's an easy way to kind of seek out like who's doing what and, and what someone stands for. Makes sense. What was the decision for you to start putting yourself out online? As I understand it correctly, you were successful before any social media profile and then you probably made a decision or did you make a decision like I'm going to actually put myself out there and be intentional about building a following? And if so, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, um, I would just say I think I understood early on that uh, the, the way the world was moving, the modern-day business tools, podcasting, being on Twitter, and then, and then looking at some of um, the most successful people in the world is they were good at garnering attention. And so for me, it was like, what do I want to garner attention and harness it towards? And at the time, it was our real estate business. And it still is for a lot of regards. But um, so it started with just like, I think this is a good idea. Again, going back to the, I think, uh, you know, this isn't a, a political statement being for or against a Donald Trump. But when you paid attention and go, man, this, we, our president of the United States might have gotten elected because of his Twitter presence. Like, mm. that's a powerful statement. And then going, I don't have to be him, but having a Twitter presence matters or some type of social presence matters. And we're starting to see today, I mean, we talk about the biggest names in the world, but you see Mr. Beast creates a huge following. And now he's just like, I'm going to start a burger company and I'm going to like show my audience the burger company. I'm going to start a chocolate company. That's where the world's headed. And so it just makes sense to... Um, uh, attract attention. Um, what kind of attention you attract is up to you. Um, but I think it's super important to the world we're, we're heading in. And it's another way to also build uh, trust at scale. 
So mm-hmm. I just think that, especially podcasting, Danny, everybody gets to know you that listens to you because they hear you ask questions and they kind of know what you're about. You know, yeah. I always say I think people have a really good detection for BS. You just listen to somebody speak enough. It doesn't matter what they're talking about. You can just hear between the lines like this guy or this girl's full of it. Um, so I also looked at is how do you build trust as quickly as possible with as many people as possible? And Twitter does a really good job of that because it's more of a stream of consciousness how you tweet. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm posting pictures of like, look at me on the beach. It's not a highlight reel. And then on, on podcasting, I think you and I can both share on this is it's the most authentic way of producing content maybe yes. that there is in the world. Yeah, absolutely. What have been some of the unexpected things that have happened or that have surprised you about building your presence online? Okay, I think, one, going back to like scaling trust, I think the, the biggest reward has been meeting these people in real life. And so what's interesting about the way the world used to be um, and still is in a lot of ways is like if you ask like who are your best friends, they were everybody that lived within a couple miles of you. Hmm. And that was kind of the reason why they were your best friends, because you saw them every day. They were close. You could go to their house and hang out. Well, online offered this whole new world where um, not that you get to pick your best friends, but you kind of do. You kind of get to see who you want to hang out with online, who you gravitate towards the most. And what's happened since is I have you know, hundreds of friends that I've met that I um, kind of got to choose. We kind of got to choose each other. We have similar interests. We care about the same things. And there's lots of them. Mm. And so I think that one of the biggest benefits is, one, the scaling of trust. I rarely meet anybody anymore that's followed me online where those first couple conversations are like getting to know each other. It's almost like we know each other from the second we talk. Like if I came and hung out with you, I would kind of know you. I've been following you for a few months. I kind of know what you're into. We chatted. And so there's these whole new things that are starting to happen where there's these events that are thrown, which are all people online that come together once a year to hang out in person. Um, and so our business, we've, we've done more deals. We've raised more money. We've met new partners, new vendors. Um, and really the most rewarding part is I've made some really great friends of mine that live all over the country. And we met through Twitter. So beautiful. Well, what attracts me to your message, too, is that you're, this is an, an obvious thing, getting to know you and hearing you talk, but it's just like you're optimistic about the world. And you have this quote here that says, pessimists sound smart, optimists make money. And it is true for attention as well, in that no. you, can, you can tear people down and gain attention quickly and be pessimistic, but if you're optimistic and giving people a win-and-help-win mindset, it helps promote you feeling better about yourself. It helps the people who are connecting with you. And that's just something I noticed from watching your tweets and going through them. Like there's, there's no tearing anyone down in anything you're talking about. So could you talk a little bit about that? And particularly, was there ever a time when you felt pessimistic? And if so, how do you get to the optimistic way of being? Um, you know, I think pessimism and optimism, um, there's just a lot of people that are just pessimists. So so the first part of your question, you know, they say you can bark up, but you can't bark down. And what I think you find a lot of people doing uh, is they use online as a, as a way to, like, blast people or 
really try and tear people down. They might not know them, um, but it sends it tells me a message really quickly. If if somebody's willing to go online and degrade somebody or take them down online, I just know that that travels into their close relationships. Mm. Uh, that travels into their day to day lives. There's just nobody that. I've ever met that's happy-go-lucky in person, but you go online and they're just blasting people all day. <laughs> true. So I think it's a, it's a great tell. As far as optimism, again, I, I can't explain it. I've just woken up every day of my life always believing that the world is getting better. Wow. And the truth is, part of that's maybe just nurture and nature, um, but the truth is the world is getting better. And if you look at things that really matter how long we're living um you know if you're the if you were the richest person in the world in 1900 you're john d rockefeller like everybody you didn't have a refrigerator you didn't have air conditioning now some of the you know financially uh what would you ever you want to call it the poorest people on the planet have all these things the problem with today's world is we're all comparing each other to the world so charlie munger says the world isn't run on greed it's run on envy and so i know people that um you know, have a private jet, but they feel broke because it's not as big as the private jet, you know, next. That's just how the world runs. And so, um, and I think social media has just amplified that. They've taken the core of human instincts, which is envy, and they've exploited it, which creates a lot of pessimism. Uh, bad news sells. Um, people are fascinated by being scared and fearful. But if, again, if you just go look at history, like, the studies show we kind of get better every year as, as a world. Um, and you can participate in the pessimism or you can participate in the optimism, but I've just very rarely met people that are pessimists their whole life that are having a whole lot of fun or enjoying it. And so as much as it is a decision for me, I also feel fortunate that it's kind of embedded in just who I am because, mm. you know, I am fortunate that I didn't grow up in a terrible set of circumstances. Um, there's kids that grow up in a, abusive house homes, uh, parents that are not around. You know, you go down the list of things. It's easier to be a pessimist when you've seen really bad things happen, especially early in life. And so part of it is just being fortunate that I haven't had to, um, to deal with that. Now, part of what, how, how do I handle that going forward is hopefully being an optimist to those people that, that need it. Because um, mm. there's a lot of people hurting. Um, and again, I've just chosen the optimistic side of things. Does that mean I don't have bad days, that there's things I'm not pessimistic about in the short term? For sure. Um, but over the long haul, I just haven't seen many folks in life that have enjoyed life. You never read a biography and somebody says, I had the best life because I was pessimistic every day when I woke up. <laughs> so true. You mentioned the envy that you see amongst friends or colleagues or acquaintances where they have a private jet, but someone else has got a bigger private jet. How did you or how have you guarded against that as the the resources that you've accumulated has risen? It's, uh, it is, um, it's not easy. I'm mm. definitely not free and clear from it. I think part of being an entrepreneur is being competitive. Mm. Um, and some part of co competition is, is envy of like, I want to win. Uh, I want to, uh, but you know, for me, it really, a lot of it goes back to just my faith, like just reading a lot of um, not just uh, 
you know, the, the Bible, but really you can go, it doesn't even have to be a, a faith thing. If you just go look at a lot of wisdom written by folks that have lived a long life, almost unequivocally, the answer is uh, envy is a bad thing. It, and, and I think Charlie Munger's quote is, uh, envy is the only sin that you actually, that doesn't really feel any good. Hmm. You know, most sins that you do, you know, you kind of do them because they're fun. But envy is the only one that you actually get no pleasure out of. Hmm. And uh, what envy really is, is you thinking about yourself. It's me, me, me. And that is a rest. The more you think about yourself, the more miserable you are. Hmm. Um, Over a long period of time, just focusing on yourself and your well-being, we weren't designed that way as humans. We were designed to help other people. We were designed to get along with other people. And when you wake up every day only worried about what you have or, more importantly, don't have as it relates to envy, it's just like a one-way road to being miserable. Um, and so I'll, I don't think I'll ever meet the guy that's, that was envious of everybody that was also the happiest person in the world. I've, when I was doing research for this, I found out that you give 10% of your income, I believe, to uh, the church. Is that correct? Yeah, we tied to the church and we tied yeah. to, uh, to several... Uh, you know, different groups that uh, are near and dear to our heart. I think our, my wife and I's big uh, deal is we like seeing, we like being on the front lines of like working with the people who are seeing the real benefit and not giving money to huge organizations where you don't really know how the money's spent. And so that has been a, a great part of um, some of the success we've had is how we've been able to pay it back. That's beautiful. How have, was there ever a time when you were more personally focused and how did you direct that energy into giving to other people? Does anything come to mind? And do you think that there needs to be times when you're personally focused and then times when you're more giving? Like, Or should you be in the giving mindset to other people at all times? Like, How do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's more the latter of... I think it's not... Um, I just think... For me, I'll be honest with you, it's been a, I've had to learn this habit. So we haven't gone there, but a lot of my early part of career was about me. Mm. It was about me. It was about my empire. It was about wanting the world to know that I was going to build something great. Um, And it's not like at the time I knew this is how I was thinking, but if I just go back and look how I made decisions and you very rarely find people that people uh, trust and enjoy over a long period of time that only think for themselves. When you think about your favorite people in the world, it's the people that serve others. And so you've probably heard of servant leadership. I've not. Okay. What's so that servant, about? servant leadership is, is, is leading to serve others. So you're leading by way of being somebody that's serving other people. Mm-hmm. Rather than taking from everybody and just and everybody following you, a leader stands at the back and does everything they can to build up the people around them, provide them the resources they need, share with them knowledge and wisdom to make them better. They're serving other people's by way of leadership. And that took me a long time to get to. Um, and so now as we sit here today, I think a, a servant mentality, whether that be with my kids when I'm at home, whether that be with my employees, when I'm at work, whether that be with my friends, whether that be with nonprofits, I don't know about you, but I always get more joy out of helping others than when I'm being helped. Um, and you talk about the podcast. 
a lot of what drives me on the podcast is the value that it provides other people. I mean, you're mm-hmm. the beneficiary, I'm sure, of a lot of emails or messages about like, hey, Danny, I can't tell you how much this episode helped me on my journey. So when people often ask me, how have you done all these episodes? Trust me, there's times I'm burnt out. But you, you that motivation of helping a lot of people out is what kind of keeps you going. And so I don't think... I certainly fail at it miserably and can become a selfish person often. But I think the goal and what I've learned and what I aspire for is to where you're that servant mentality or that giving mentality is just always on. And that doesn't mean I'm always giving away money or, or time, but it's, it's really just saying I'm going to think of others before I think about myself. Going back to early in your career when people, when you wanted people to look at you and see how great you were, what do you think went into the transition to be more giving? Um, one, I think, um, it's what I truly enjoyed doing, but I think what had happened was I was so, my mission at the time was to build this empire. And again, a lot of this is just wisdom. Like, uh, look, a lot of this you have to kind of go through. And for me, I kind of crashed, you know, a few years ago. Um, and when I really looked at why I was miserable, it's like I had everything I wanted. I had done everything I had wanted to achieve. I had built a big business. I had bought a lot of real estate. I would made some money. But I still wasn't really fulfilled. And it's because the whole mission was um, really had to do about me, even though I could sit there and tell you when I feel the best is when I'm helping other people. Mm. And so it was reframing, like, what is my purpose? Like, why am I doing all this? Because then you kind of take in the wisdom of elder people you never would meet a 90-year-old person that says, I think the, the Warren Buffett quote, and I'm, I'm using quotes just because everybody can understand them, is you think you'd rather be 92 and worth $100 billion or 30 healthy and, and starting all over again? So it's like, okay, so money isn't the goal because you can't take it when you, with you when you leave. I've never met an older person that's like, I wish I had worked two extra days. I'm glad I missed all my daughter's soccer games. I, so you start going like, what are the older people that have been through this life really telling you? Mm. And none of them are telling you the things that we believe at young 20s that we should be doing. Now, that's not to say don't work hard, don't chase your dreams. I'm all for that. But it's framing like why you're doing it. And for me, the why was about myself. And that's where I started to become very miserable. It was before I changed the lens and said, my purpose here is to help as many people achieve their dreams as possible that one the work became more fulfilling but that really is how the world should work that's how we're designed we are here to help everybody around us and for those that have success it's a core value of mine it's like if you've been had any bit of success in this world i have i believe you have a strong moral duty to pay that forward to whomever could use it it's so funny you go to the older people for wisdom because i've often thought about what if the podcast was just me interviewing 80 plus year olds? Because it's like, <laughs> those are the people who have lived the longest, who have the most wisdom, who, who have seen it all. So like, why isn't there a podcast out there that is literally just 80 plus year old conversations? <laughs> and my grandparents are listening to this and smiling. But <laughs> uh, you've said before that you've never met an older person who wishes they had less children. So talk to me about parenting and raising children. And I often bring up this topic, even though I'm 27 years old, single, have no children of my own. But I ask it because we are all 
parenting ourselves at all times. We are all leading ourselves at all times. And because of that, I really highlighted and really want to make sure that people understand how your advice to your children or how you go about parenting is actually how people can think about leading themselves. Yeah, I think, um, you know, parenting changes you. Uh, Again, Mm -hmm. part of my transformation was becoming a parent. A a great parent, in my opinion, is a selfless person. Mm. you're taking care of these people that can't take care of themselves. You're teaching them lessons that you hope that um, they'll take on with them in life. Because once they go out of the house, they're responsible for who they are, for who they become. And there's nobody in life that has a bigger impact on that than I think the parents. Um, And then again, just talking to people, you know, we have three kids but I, I just felt like I asked a lot of people about kids. And I think there's a quote like, the days are long, but the years are short. Mm. And being a parent is, is tough. It's not like all roses. I mean, it's a lot of it is, is work. Um, it is not exactly maybe what you would want to be doing, but what you have to do. But as life goes on and you get older and older, um, there's just very few people I've ever met that aren't, ecstatic that they have these families and they have these kids. And so they'll often say, you know, I wish I had had more. And that was a lot of the advice I've been given, not only because they're your family and you, and you love them, but as the phases of life go on, those kids are, are mean different things to you at different stages in life. Mm-hmm. You know, one day I'm going to be really old and I'm going to need some help from my kids to take care of me. But being able to watch their kids grow up, I just believe that in, in a lot of um, aspects, um, your immediate family and your family around you is what's a lot of the joy. And so, I don't know, I just put that out because it was probably the 10th time I had heard somebody say, you know, I, my only regret is I didn't have more kids. Um, so, anyway. Talk to me about the step before that. How do you find someone worth having children with or you align with and connect with? I think it's um, you know I think it's uh, it's finding someone that has similar values to what you have. Um, I think that the world's view of marriage is flawed. Mm-hmm. The movies show marriage as this constant honeymoon. Um, I don't think that's what marriage was designed to be. Again, marriage is supposed to make you less less selfish. Hmm. Uh, you are splitting a life with somebody. Uh, you are uh, hopefully making a commitment that you're mine forever, uh, till death do us part through sickness and health. Um, and so again, marriage is not designed, in my opinion, to just be this um, honeymoon for 60 years. What mm-hmm. marriage actually does is it teaches you to be less selfish. It teaches you how to deal with problems because ultimately what you mostly find is most people get married, they think they know each other, and then they get married and then they really start to get to know each other. Almost unequivocally, unless you're someone that's dated your girlfriend or boyfriend for 10 years before. Um, but a lot of people, they, you know, they date a year or two, things are great. You know, you can call it this quote unquote honeymoon phase. And so for me and for the folks that I've seen marriage do best, like the best marriages that I admire are not because it's a honeymoon. It's because they've learned how to work through issues. They've learned how to respect each other. They've learned how to, um, to give and not 
you know, be selfish. Uh, they've learned how to forgive each other. Marriage is like a constant forgiveness. You're constantly forgiving. I'm, I constantly need forgiveness from my spouse. It's showing them grace. Um, it's having humility. And so there's a lot to marriage beyond just what you would think in the movies, which is, you know, cool vacations and always romantic love pedals. I think for me personally, it was um, somebody that um, would ultimately make me a better person. And I think that's what marriage is a lot about. As far as how to find that person, I think for me, it was you just kind of knew it when once you the chemistry was right. I didn't. I, Tinder came out two weeks after we started dating. I remember <laughs> dating my wife, and I remember all my buddies. This was like 2012. We met in May of 2012. I, th- I think if you looked it up, like Tinder came out like a week or two later, uh, and they're like, "Oh, there's this app." And I've ne- so I've never been on a dating app, so I can't say the dating app is a way to find them. Um, but I don't know. It's kind of like a lot of things in life. We kind of have these internal systems that when the right thing shows up, we kind of know it, and it's kind of hard to describe. That's kind of what happened for me. Mm. That makes sense. You're you're somebody who is ambitious and is trying to achieve more in the world, but you also have a family. How do you balance those two, and how do you not let one part of it take more of your time or more than you want? Like, How does that work for you? Yeah. Um, so I'll tell a quick story. So there's talk about mentors. There's a guy in my life, Pete Chambers, uh, who when I was like 28, I was working all the time. I was rarely home. I thought I was doing all the right things. And he was part of this thing called Halftime Institute. And he just said, there are decisions that you can make today that will help set you up for a great future. Because what he had experienced was a lot of people um, – especially males, because we tend to be more performance-driven human beings, spent their entire lives building this wealth, building this idea, and not doing it, the, not having malicious intent. But his whole thing was, their idea was, I'm going to spend the first 20 or 30 years building this empire, whatever you want to call it. And then once it's built, then we'll go on family vacations, we'll have a nice house, blah, blah, blah. And what, you, what, what all these men had found was they got to what they, they called the halftime institutes where you learn this stuff, but they had found that by the time they get to the second half of their life, they really didn't have a relationship with their wife. They've, their kids didn't really know them because they were never home. And so they had all this money and all this whatever they had wanted, but they kind of had these empty lives. They, they didn't really have any friends because they'd put it all in at work. And so that really helped me reframe things early on in my career, which the answer was just once I understood that that was a possibility, that I could have all the right intentions my whole career thinking I was building this thing, but it would have all these negative consequences down the road if I didn't prioritize my family. That was at least the first thing to go, I need to prioritize my family. Because I think we hear that. And for a lot of people, they think they are prioritizing their family by working harder and making more money and providing. But you never meet like a child who like loves their daddy because he got like a big bonus or like did an extra deal. They could care less. And so I'd say step one was just like framing what could happen if I neglect my family. Like what could I have later in life? Um, and the second is... I, I I just I just don't want to miss these times. Like 
it's a personal deal. I look at my kids are still relatively young, but I know these. This is one time I have in my life to pour into these kids, to be with them, to love them when they're little kids, because eventually they're going to become teenagers. Everybody thinks you have your kids till you're 18. You really have them till you're like 12 or 13, because once they're 12 or 13, they kind of are off doing their own thing. They don't really, you know, the parents aren't cool anymore. And so it was just another time to say, like, here's a certain window in my life that I have, and I really don't want to miss it because I don't want to be that guy once my kids are long gone that regrets that I never really got to see them growing up, even though I thought I was doing the right thing all along. You mentioned that your mentor is somebody that gave you that advice or told you that story or pushed you in that direction. And from doing research, you also, it seems like, have mentees. I don't know if this is like a formal thing either way, but I'm curious what the role of mentorship has played in your life thus far. Everything. Um, and your mentor could be alive. Your mentor could be dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but whoever's listening to this, there are people that have done what you want to do. Mm. They've been the best dad. They've been the best CEO. They've been the best product manager. They've been the best golfer. And they've been the best podcaster. And you have a few decisions. You can make a million mistakes that have already been made by other people. Or you can jump the line and get that wisdom, what should I do, what shouldn't I do? Again, that mentor should be somebody that's done the thing that you want to do. You should apply that information to your situation because it's not all apples to apples. But what's what I found so amazing is a lot of people on this planet are very nervous to ask people questions. They don't want to look dumb. They don't want to look silly. And I, again, I don't know where this came from. Since I was a young kid, it was so obvious to me that like, if I want to know something, just go ask the person that already did it. Yeah. And here's the, here's, the, here's the coolest part. Not everybody, but the majority of people that have had any bit of success on this earth and are decent human beings ha- find joy in helping you back out. Hmm. And what happens is, um, and, 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 and mentors come in all shapes and forms. I don't have just business mentors. I have mentors of two guys that have built wonderful families. I lean, I lean on them a lot for what decisions do I have to make to be, make my home life better? Hmm. Because our, our life is not compartmentalized. You don't have a business life, an at-home life, a friend life. When one of, if your at-home life is struggling, everything else is struggling whether you know it or not. Hmm. And so going back to mentorship and then my being able to mentor other people is like I get a lot of joy out of it. One, I look at my podcast as kind of being a mentor to a lot of folks. But I can only do that because the mentors I have in my life, um, which, again, some people are on this earth, some people are dead, but I'm gleaning wisdom from people that have done it, and I'm being super intentional about asking them questions so that I don't have to make all the mistakes that they made, and it's a kind of fast track to get to where I'm going. How do you ask effective questions to your mentors, especially when they're not living? Uh I think one is kind of knowing what you're trying to solve for. Hmm. So even if it was just like, um, you know, like how do I want to be a better dad? Is is one just going okay? Who are who do I admire? That's a great dad, or at least I perceive as a great dad. And then starting with just very basic questions like, 
why do you think you've been a great dad? Asking like the most elementary of questions, as you know, as a pod, like that kind of leads into maybe some of the more detailed nuance. Um, you know, tell me some times when like you were at a crossroads, like when your kids didn't like you or that, that you felt remorseful for something you did. What are some things you wish you could do all over again if you had the opportunity? Um, who are, who's somebody that helped you build a great family? Is there anybody else that and, and maybe there's a book I could go read? But a lot of it is just gleaning their perspective. And, and they should know why you're kind of asking them for those questions. Is like, one, I think you've been an incredible father. And so if you don't mind, I want to find out what made you a great father. What were the good things you did? What are the things you wish you had done differently? And then apply those to my situation. Um, but I think it really starts with asking the really basic questions and then asking the questions that are really relevant to your situation. Um, and what I've found through podcasting or through having mentors, it's not the really complex, complicated questions that get you where you're going. It's like the really simple ones that kind of start moving the ball and kind of uh, help understand who someone is. That makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, what are the the routines or the habits that you are non-negotiable for you and that keep you on the right path every day? Could be little, could be big. Yeah, um, I have to admit, you know, you, especially on Twitter these days, you find these people that they wake up at four thirty, they take an ice bath, they, you know, blah blah blah. Those are all great. I'm not that kind of person. Uh, my non-negotiables right now at, at my life are, um, I take my kids to school four days a week, so I plan absolutely nothing. It unless I'm out of town, there is nothing that is going to change that. Why? because it gets me 30 minutes with my kids every morning. Mm. Uh, so that's a non-negotiable. I read quite a bit, and so I'm getting better at blocking time um, to read. Uh, I do. I try and do a date night with my wife a couple times a week. I mean, a couple times a month. Um, and you notice like what I'm telling you is how to keep, protect my personal life, my home life, because for me, uh, and, and again, we, won't, we don't have to go down here, I'm a, I am somebody that is recovering from almost blowing up my whole home life, chasing the business world. Mm. And so what I realized was my business world started being affected as I let my home life go. And so it was reframing what's going to become important. Now my six-year-old just started soccer. I'm not missing one of her soccer games. You could have the greatest party ever. I'm not missing her soccer game for that party. And so what I've learned is when my home life is amazing, other parts of my life begin to uh, open up. Um, and it's, But really, I don't have any like strict mandates. I have a Bible study twice a week I go to. But if I looked at my calendar and just said, like, these are the things that are every week, it really has to do with everything outside of work uh, that I want to keep fresh because it makes showing up to work one more purposeful but two just a lot easier when you're not coming into work with all the stress going on in your personal life how has making lots of money changed you or impacted you uh i think it for me it didn't really change my spending. I'm not like a spender, so I, I don't wear fancy watches or you'll never really see my, my, you know, things become important. I think what it's done is, um, you know, 
It has definitely made certain areas of my life easier, but it also makes other areas of your life more complicated. Mm. Um, it, I think, puts a much bigger responsibility. Again, in my belief, it's not my money anyway. I'm playing with God's money. Mm. And I think he tests. He, in the, he won't give me more money than my character can handle. Mm. I'm learning right now what that is like and how I can be most effective. Um, so it's it's put more pressure on me to do something with the gifts I've been given. Um, but it's made it easier to help people. Uh, obviously, my life's become easier. There's certain things I don't have to worry about anymore. But, you know, there's money. Who knows where, where time will take, what, 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 what will happen as time goes by. But mm. money, more money, more problems is, is, a, is a great rap song that was a top seller for a reason. But it really means something. We have money. I think that what I'm trying to say is money uh, has a way of magnifying who you are as a person. Mm. So if somebody's naturally a giver, when they get more money, guess what? They give more money. But if somebody is not a giver and they get a lot of money, you can now kind of see that person and that person then becomes maybe what you'd call greedy or uh, they're not very giving. And you would know that because you know they have a lot of resources, but they don't help anybody out. You know, if you're poor and you don't give anybody any resources, it's like, well, you had nothing to give to begin with. But the expectation that society, Mm. your family put on you is different. And so uh, I think it's something that people need to relearn about themselves. And just I'm always reminded it's not my money to begin with. And the mo- any bit of wealth that I create will magnify who I am as a person in the long run. Hmm. So making money, I'm sure, feels like a high because that is a, a success that you aim to achieve. But then the lows I want to talk about as well, because I believe during COVID you were you were under the impression that it was possible that your business, everything you had built was going to be go away overnight, yep. basically. So take me through the low of that and how do you navigate through that? And also you can feel free to highlight some of the mistakes or some of the things you've done did well in that time that you might not have mentioned in other places. So, I, I've been vocal uh, on the on the record when um, when COVID hit. I those first like few weeks of COVID, uh, I thought I had lost everything. Hmm. And again, at the time, what my mission was, or my God, was to build this empire or this uh, to make money. And so, when you tie yourself to that objective, and that thing is is being ripped out of your hands you can feel like the whole world is ending. Mm. That was a huge wake-up call for me because what would have really happened if I had lost everything? Like, I'd still be here. I'd still have my kids. I'd still have my family. I'd still have 60 years to go. But in that moment, I felt like this is all being taken from me. Mm. And so that was just a huge wake-up call for me. That was a huge... I think if I look back on my life, that will always be a... Because it reframed my life. What was most important is not what I was nervous about in that moment. I wasn't even thinking about my health. Mm. I never thought it. I thought about the business. I didn't think about, I wasn't thinking about anything else except for this business. So again, for me, it was maybe an inflection point just to go like, what have I been prioritizing and what have I been idolizing? Now, 
what that did for our business, though, on just pure business terms, I have an amazing partner, Jason, and an amazing team. And what we learned from that was the best companies in the world understand their financial position, their cash position, the, the big levers that are that are making that cash position or that financial position happen. And so what we learned there was, and the worst businesses have kind of no idea what's going on. And you'd be shocked, businesses that have been around forever that still don't really understand their financial position going into something. So for us, COVID was an amazing opportunity to uh, prioritize that no matter where we were in the market cycle, we always knew where we stood and what we would need to do to achieve a certain result or why things were happening the way they were happening. Clearly, shutting down the world for a few weeks and telling people not to pay rent is not necessarily in the playbook. But the, the gift that we got through COVID was we're going to understand our business in and out. And once you understand your business in and out, you don't have to wonder or get like getting more nervous about where you are isn't a thing. You have processes and ways to understand like this is where we're at. This is how we're going to make decisions going forward. This is the next best step as opposed to kind of this gray area of like the world's falling apart and we think we're doing well. We don't know how well and we don't really know what's going on. That accelerates panic um, just like it would in any other situation in life. Uh, the more confidence you have about something that you're working on, the more level-headed you can be about it, the better decisions you can make. And so for us, it was an opportunity to just get really dialed in on never again will we not know 100% where we stand from a financial perspective. What should somebody do who's listening to this and maybe is running a, a one-person or a very a much smaller business? Like, how should What are the steps that they should take to better understand their financial position? I think just step one is understanding that accounting, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially first-time entrepreneurs, think of counting as like this afterthought. Um, I think the, the smartest thing you can do is prioritize it. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna and, and prioritize not only having an accountant, but having clean financials monthly, quarterly, annually, because ultimately that's how you make decisions about whether to grow, what you can spend, where things are working, where things are not working. And so I think my answer is um, prioritize it. I can't, we used to do a lot of venture investing and it's amazing to me how many companies, founders you would ask, who's doing your accounting? And it was like, well, we'll figure that out once we get the business going. Um, so my, I think my only answer is, is prioritizing it and not making it an afterthought because most people, especially on their first venture, it's an afterthought. Mm. Thank you for, for highlighting that. Um, I like to end these podcasts with a challenge. A challenge for people points to the place in your heart you think people should take some action for this podcast and where you think they should they take it, they listen, and then what do you do from it? Does a challenge come to mind from everything we spoke about or something we haven't? So a challenge that I would give the guests. Give the listener, yeah. Um, okay. We kind of talked about marriage quite a bit. Yeah. Here's what I would challenge you with. This is an interesting thing that I went through. There's five Fs, and I'm going to make sure I get them right. I'll stop my head. Faith family, fun, fitness, and finances. 
So that's faith, family, fitness, fun, and finances. Write down four or five things that you believe about each one of those things. Um, they could be like I, one of mine under uh, under fitness was um, Warren Buffett says a uh, a healthy man wants a thousand things, a sick man wants one thing. So that's mm-hmm. like something I believe about. So it's just kind of things that you believe about those categories, and you can write four to five of them. You guys each do it separately, and then come together and. Um, share your answers and see where you're really alike, where you're really not alike, and you'll learn a lot about your spouse. I'd been married to my spouse eight years when we did this, and it was incredible to learn a lot that I had never known. Um, In finances, how you think about money, how you think you should spend money, what you shouldn't spend money on. As far as family, like what do you think about when you think about family? So it's not like a necessarily a set of goals that you're looking to achieve it's just more like what are things you believe in each of those categories um so for like fitness i had i believe i should work out uh weight lift three days a week cardio two days a week um that would be my challenge and then share that with your spouse i think you will learn a lot about your spouse i think you'll get on the same page of a lot of things and you'll find ways to please your spouse that you didn't know you could do before i love that what would you suggest to people who are single if you're single, uh, what is a challenge I would give you if you're single? Um, it could be about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to every episode of the Danny Miranda podcast. No, I'm kidding. Uh, if I could give a challenge for... A single person. Um, okay, it would probably be something again from the Halftime Institute. It's called a life map, but it, it, in its most simple form, is like where are you? Tr- what are the things that you hope are happening in your? Like if you are sixty years old, and you were and you were sitting in a room, and you were telling somebody, "Here is where my life is at right now." Pick a date in the future. Hmm. what are the things that are happening in your life when you're 60? Um, Do you have a business? Do you have a wife? Do you have kids? Are your kids in school? Where? I mean, you can can craft that message however you want. I think there's a lot of power in, one, understanding what your dreams are. Hmm. Not a lot of people ever just put them on paper. But then you can kind of back into that. It's like, okay, I'm going to be married when I'm 60 to a, a wife that is this is what she cares about and, and bought, like get as detailed or as undetailed as you want. But a lot of um, cool things happen when you kind of have the end in mind and you can kind of work your way backwards. Um, so that might be a challenge on personal growth and just kind of understanding, you know, what you need to be doing today to make sure that when you're 60 sitting in that chair and obviously life's going to change and, you know, maybe that isn't how it ends up, but, uh, it's, it was always a really crazy exercise for me to write about my life 30, 40 years later and think about, one, the other thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll add, you also learn, like, what are you doing in your life right now that has nothing to do with who you want to be when you're 60? Mm. And that's probably the most important thing is... A lot of life is not just knowing what you want, it's knowing what you don't want. And most, when I did that exercise, 
what I found in a lot of um, areas of my life was I'm doing absolutely nothing in the moment that gets me anywhere close to where I dream of being. What were examples of that? Um, well, for one, uh, I uh, wanted to have a I wanted to be a grandfather with my wife and our kids. And so one area, and I've already kind of said it, and I'm a vulnerable guy, my marriage was not doing well. Hmm. How could I be a 60-year-old man with a happy marriage and grandkids running around the living room if I wasn't even sure I was going to make it to 60 being married? Hmm. I need to get my marriage in order. And that's going to take a lot of work. Okay, I'm going to start working on that. Um, Fitness-wise... You know, I didn't want to be 60 and be the 60-year-old that could barely get around the house. And in today's world, there's plenty of opportunities to be fit as hell by the time you're 60. So maybe I start working out or just doing something now because fitness is a lifelong journey. Before that, I was the, uh, you know, work out for a year, then gain 30 pounds, then lose it all. Then, you know, that I was on a roller coaster was, no, fitness is going to be a constant thing in my life. Um and just lots of things. It was like business wasn't going to define me when I was mm. 60. I, I didn't want to die, and the only thing people could say about me was, well, he built a great company, but we can't say much else. But I'm telling you, five, six years ago, that was, at least in my heart, maybe that's not what other people would say, that's probably how I thought I would be known was he built a great company, uh, didn't know his kids, didn't really, really want a great husband, never was there for his friends because he had no time for them. Um, but hell, you should see his business. It was awesome. It's like that doesn't cut it. Um, and again, all these things I'm saying, I don't think anybody ever intentionally wakes up and goes, I'm going to destroy my marriage. I'm not going to be a good father and I'm going to be a bad friend. That's just kind of the actions that they take. Mm -hmm. And so you asked like some examples of how my future self, there's things I could do today. Those are a couple, but there was many that would need to change today. How do you want to be remembered, Chris? Oh, man. Um, I want to be remembered. Uh, I just want to be remembered that I um, that I took with I took what I had and I helped as many people along the way as I could. Um, my kids, my wife, that I treated people uh, respectfully, that I showed them grace. Um, that I was a good friend, but really that I just cared for other people and, and put them first. Um, and if I keep doing that in life, like I think the other parts of life will continue to uh, to work themselves out. It's as soon as the world becomes about you and you only that things start to crumble. I just don't think our purpose on earth is to do is to take as much from the world as we can and then take off from earth. I think the world is to give as much to the world as you can and then take off. I appreciate your vulnerability so much, man. Like, it's really special to see. It's cool. Um, I'm really honored to have spent so much time here today with you and for you to go so deep. Is there anything you'd like to leave the audience with? Um, send them to the place you want to go um, or you want them to, to reach you or just leave them with a message? Yeah, I think we'll just end it on the vulnerability. If there's anything I've learned over the last few years, um, you know, we live in a world right now where um, 
really all we're seeing online is just highlight reels of people. And we're not really learning the real people behind because we all are struggling with something. We all have insecurities. We've all done really stupid things that we wish we hadn't done before. And the best way that I have found about moving forward is one, sharing those. You don't have to share them on a podcast, but uh, I was not a very vulnerable person for a long time. And especially males are taught to be very strong and never show weakness. Um, and that is a recipe for disaster. So I would just encourage somebody, um, if you have trouble being vulnerable, being vulnerable has been one of the most therapeutic and, and life-changing things in my world. As far as how you can reach me, uh, Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. I have a podcast, The Fort Podcast with Chris Powers. You can listen to that after listening to Danny's podcast. Um, or you can go to thefortpod.com. Uh, those are the best ways to reach me. And then our company, of course, fortcapitallp.com. Awesome. All linked below. I appreciate you so much, Chris. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm so excited to hopefully one day do this in person. Thank you so much. Thank you, Danny.